Brother, I, I invite you to turn back to 1 John chapter 4. Our text today will be verses 7 through 11, though I'll begin my reading at verse 1. I am following on a bit from last week's sermon as we looked at 1 John 3. Uh, Today I want to focus on one of the three tests that John teaches that we are to use when we test the spirits. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know the spirit of, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has gone in the flesh, has come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and, na- and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the, the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this love... In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, you have indeed manifested love toward us and revealed that to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And for that, we are most grateful. Without his work on our behalf, we would remain far from you, and yet you've brought us close by your Spirit. Your Spirit has goaded us to embrace the great Savior, Jesus Christ. He is, the Spirit has opened our eyes and our ears to understand the truths of your Word. And Father, he is the one that guides and directs us in our walk in righteousness And as we learn from this passage, we are to emulate the love that you, your Son, and the Spirit show toward us in salvation, and that we are to emulate that by loving others. Goad us to that good work, Lord. Show us a path, that path of righteousness in its fullness, and may we embrace it with our whole hearts, that your kingdom would advance, that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified on earth as it is in heaven, and that your people gathered for that great and glorious day of Christ's return. And we ask these things and pray them with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Well, brethren, last week we were in 1 John 3 and considered the loves of sinful men, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And today, on this first Sunday in December, (coughs) excuse me, We are going to consider the love of God toward the sinner. 
This love of God is the very motivation that resulted in the advent of God, the Son, coming to earth as a man. And before we begin our consideration of the passage, let's consider the three primary words found in the Greek New Testament that are translated love. For some, this will be review, while others, this may be your first exposure uh, to these uh, three words. The three Greek words that are primarily used for love in the New Testament are phileo, eros, and agape. The meaning of each has a different emphasis that our single word in the English, the word love, does not necessarily, uh, uh, is not necessarily evident. Uh, we, we look at the, the, the use of love in the English language in its context to find out what its emphasis is. But in the Greek language, there are three different uses of the word love, three different words for the word love that help clarify the use. Uh, the Greek word phileo is the Greek word for the love shared by close friends. Uh, this would be um, friendships that you develop over time. It could be a closeness to a, uh, a family member. Uh, and that is typically the word phileo. The Greek word eros is the intimate physical love shared between a husband and a wife. And then the last word, the Greek word agape, is the word for the strongest kind of love. And that is to say it is a sacrificial love, a love that, that elevates others at the expense of one's own self. That's the kind of uh, uh, love that's being taught here in uh, John's epistle, first epistle. Uh, this love, again, it, it motivates a person to go into harm's way or to protect or save another. This is a, the kind of love that's, that's shown by uh, first responders, for instance. And we have some of those in our congregation uh, where they're going to go into harm's way to provide for the needs of others. They'll put their own lives at risk. It's also the kind of love that when an intruder would would uh, come into the home that the, the, the husband, the father is going to hopefully exhibit in going after that intruder uh, to protect his family. Uh, it's also the kind of love that on the battlefield where one soldier uh, sacrifices his life to preserve the lives of fellow soldiers. Now, that's the kind of a love that agape shows. I point these three differing words out to you to let you know that in 1 John chapter 4, the only word used by the Apostle John as love is this third word, agape, sacrificial love. Phileo and eros are not used, only agape. I also want us to consider another aspect of this chapter by way of introduction, and that is that the Apostle Paul begins the chapter warning the believers of God to test the spirits to see if they be of God. Now this concern is expressed because John knows that false prophets have gone out into the world and are endeavoring even in his day to mislead and deceive the church. Last week I spoke about the two weapons that Satan uses against the church. The first being persecution and the second being deception. And it is this second concern that John is addressing in this chapter. To test the spirits of men, John identifies three tests, the first being found in verses 2 and 3. By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. 
And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So here in these two verses, we see that those who truly profess that Jesus Christ uh, has come in the flesh, he is very God of very God, and he is also a man, they are of God. Those people who profess that are of God. In other words, those who believe Jesus is the God-man is of God. Brethren, this is one reason that we say the ancient creeds of the church each week in our worship. We are professing who and what the Trinity is. And this is an affirmation that we are true believers and not antichrists. We embrace these truths and we proclaim them with our lips. The second test in John's uh, in chapter 4 of John's epistle is found in verses 4 through 6, where we read, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who, know, he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now this test of the spirits is a little bit obtuse. Here the Apostle John is talking about how we communicate with the brethren. As believers, we have a distinctive kind of communication. It comes from God's vocabulary. We speak in paradigms that God has constructed around the life and work of his Son, Jesus our Lord. Thus our speech reflects God's revelation. The unbeliever doesn't comprehend the things of God, and therefore his speech and vocabulary does not reflect godly paradigms. Now sometimes when we meet new people, we can discern this immediately. We can discern whether their speech patterns are that of of, uh, uh, Christ-likeness, or if they are not. So others, with other people, it takes a little longer, and still others... We can tell they are believers because their speech and their actions coincide with God's revelation. So some people's speech really reflects the world very closely. Others are a little bit more obscure to us. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Still others are people whose speech really reflects godliness and the Scriptures. But this is another test for those who follow after Christ, who are of the Father. Then the last of the three tests is the agape test, and that's the subject matter of our text today. <clears throat> but I want you to jump down with me to the last two verses of 1 John 4. John plainly states in these last two verses, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, How can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So the agape test is, how does a person's life reflect God to others? John warns the church that hatred for one's brother is a sure sign of not being a child of God. If you hate your brother, though you say that you love God, You are a liar and of the Antichrist. 
Brethren, it is this test, this last test, that the Apostle John spends the largest portion of time explaining in our uh, in chapter 4 of his epistle. And so that's where we're going to spend our time, verses 7 through 11 primarily. So let me read that portion of the chapter again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In verses 7 and 8, not only do we learn the definition of love, we also learn that we as Christians, to be called true Christians, must be possessed by and emit love which comes from the very essence of God. Said another way, we must be born out of sacrificial love and we must exude sacrificial love as children of the living God. I emphasize again the nature of the love John is describing. This is the most profound kind of love. It's not a friendship kind of love. It's not an erotic kind of love. It's a sacrificial kind of love. It's agape love. And that is the love which God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit possess. And we are born of that love. And we are to practice it. Now I can't help but think of the Apostle John's account of the disciples being confronted by Jesus at the Sea of Tiberias following his resurrection. If you, In your minds, if you'll jump back with me to John's Gospel, to the 21st chapter, it is there that John records Jesus confronting Peter with his mission to the church. You'll recall that Jesus is on the shore. They're out fishing. They're casting their, sea, their net into the sea. They're not gaining anything. He calls out to them. He says, cast it on the other side of the boat. And I think it's 153. Is that the right number, Tom? I asked Tom because he's done some study on it. It's about about that, right? It's a very precise number. They cast the net on the other side of the boat and they gather in a large cache of fish. And then they pull them into the, into the seashore. And as they come into the seashore, Jesus confronts Peter. Now this is after his resurrection. And so initially, they don't, I don't think they recognize who it is, but once, they, once this miracle happens with the casting of the net, why uh, they, they quickly become... Uh, aware of the person of Christ in their midst. Jesus twice asks Peter if he loves him. Peter, do you love me? Jesus uses the word agape. Do you love me with a sacrificial love? Peter responds with, yes, I love you, Jesus, but he uses the word phileo. I love you with a, a, a close friendship kind of love. And Jesus says to him in those first two questions, feed my sheep and tend my sheep. So he's giving him, uh, Peter, a commission in the church. It's your job to be a shepherd to the sheep. I'm calling you to that work. But Jesus is asking, are you, do you have a, a, a sacrificial kind of love for me? And he responds, I have a, 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 a strong friendship kind of love for you. Now, Jesus, a third time, 
asks Peter, do you love me? And he uses the phileo term. And the third question, do you love me with a friendship kind of love, a deep friendship kind of love? And, and Peter, the Scriptures say, is grieved because Jesus asked the third time if Peter had the love for him that was like that of a close friend and not the sacrificial love Jesus had shown toward Peter at his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. Jesus comes back. It's a teachable moment for Peter, if you could think of it that way. Jesus comes back to him and says, do you, have, do you truly have this lesser kind of love for me? And, and Peter is grieved. It, he's cut to the quick. If you think about his circumstance, not, not that many days before this, Peter had denied his Savior three times. And, uh, and so he, he's questioning, no doubt, in his own mind, do I have the sacrificial kind of love that Jesus asks of me? My past says I don't. My guess is, and it's only a guess, that he's thinking about that, that unfaithfulness that he had committed uh, before his Savior. Jesus, though, is very gracious. He's very gracious. Even with that lesser kind of love, Jesus says, Feed my sheep. You have a commission in my kingdom. You are a shepherd. Do the work and do it well. And Peter is very humbled by this. Even though Peter was unsure of his love for Jesus, Jesus showed his confidence in Peter by again giving Peter the mission to feed the children of God. Peter's confidence in his own sacrificial love for Jesus has been shaken He had denied his Lord at the crucifixion. Peter doubted his own love, but Jesus knew Peter's love. And he knew that that love would would not be shaken in the future. Peter's agape love for Jesus would be affirmed both in his ministry to the church, where he would be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, as well as in his martyrdom. Peter shows that kind of sacrificial love after this encounter. And I think in large measure, it's because of Christ's graciousness toward this man who had denied him. He's putting confidence in Peter when Peter has no confidence in himself. Does that describe us? Does that describe you? How often do we fail in our Christian walk and we wonder if truly we are faithful believers? And yet, Christ's sacrifice for us overcomes our sin, our depravity, and our proclivity to go back to the ways of the world. You and I sin against our brethren even. Unkind words, selfish coveting, lust, evil, evils of various sorts, all these are done against our own brethren out of our own selfish desires. And yet, Jesus, as in the case of Peter, loves him with a sacrificial love to raise him up out of that and to set his feet on the solid rock of Christ. We are blessed in the Scriptures. Not only does God here in this passage define what love is, it says in the passage, God is love. But not only that, Paul writes of the attributes of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Consider these attributes in light of what Christ has done for us. Love suffers long and is kind. Did Christ suffer long 
Indeed, he did. Love does not envy. Jesus was tempted with the the kingdoms of the world by Satan. And what did he say to Satan? Get thee behind me. You shall honor God the Father. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Jesus was a a comely man, the Scriptures teach us. He didn't draw attention to Himself. He, he, He came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Not in a chariot. Not with throngs of people uh, calling out to Him as in pomp and circumstance. Though the throng came, it wasn't in pomp and circumstance. He didn't parade Himself. He was not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Could, could Jesus, one of the, 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 the thieves on the cross next to Jesus, Jesus, tempted him by saying, why don't you call the host of heaven down and, and come down off this cross? Save yourself. He was not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, Endures all things. This is, these are the attributes of this agape kind of love. And these attributes permeate the mind and the heart of the one who loves his brother. All of these attributes were personified by our Lord while he walked on this earth. <clears throat> in fact, in verses 9 through 11 of our text, God manifested to us this kind of love in sending His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is a big word. It's used twice in the book of John, and I believe once in the book of Romans. Uh, It's a theological term. Uh, And here God demonstrates His sacrificial love toward us in verses 9-11 through with a certain kind of sacrifice to be slain for our sins, a propitiatory sacrifice. Well, what does that big word mean? Children, you, this may be a big word you've never heard or never used before. Probably won't use it very often. Even theologians don't use it very often. But the word propitiatory is a large word, meaning uh, it's a sacrifice that appeases the wrath, the very wrath of God. It's a, it's a unique sacrifice that appeases the very wrath of God. And Jesus came to endure endure the just wrath of the Father, so that we who do not have, have the ability to endure the wrath of the Father might be saved from His wrath. Jesus came to be a propitiatory sacrifice. Now in the Old Covenant, when a sacrificial lamb was slain to atone for the sins of an individual or a family, the person or head of household would grab hold of that lamb with both hands, hold that lamb while the lamb's throat would be slit by the Levitical priest, and the the animal would die in his his hands, in his arms. That, That picture of that kind of sacrifice is the picture that we are to have of Christ Himself. We are to embrace the sacrificial lamb who hangs on the cross and dies for our sins. We are, so to, we are to identify so closely with Him 
that, that John uses the word to abide in Christ. We are to become one with Him. He becomes the sacrificial lamb for us. And we embrace Him and hold on to Him as the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Brethren, we are born from above. We who have grasped with both hands Jesus the Christ as our Savior and have held on to Him as He goes to the cross for our sins. Our sins have passed to Him and He bore the wrath of the Father, a propitiatory sacrifice on our behalf. And not for our sins only, the Scriptures say, but for the whole world. In this, the love of God is manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The selfless love of the Father to give His Son as a godly and human sacrifice for us has been made manifest to us in the selfless person of Jesus who laid aside His glory, was born in humbleness, and died a selfless, unjust death for us. The Spirit then selflessly born the work of the Father to harvest from sinful mankind a people unto Himself and to inhabit the kingdom of God. And this is the selflessness of the Trinity on our behalf. The Father has decreed this He sent His Son to be a propitiatory sacrifice. Jesus did it. And the Holy Spirit applies it to us. This is a test, John says, of what it means to discern if a person truly is a believer, a Christian. One who is testifying of the faithfulness of God. If they embrace that kind of love and then exude that kind of love with others, They are of the kingdom. Now I want to spend a little time on application. These truths are not new to this congregation. I've I've preached these. Other men have preached these. It's been taught in Sunday school, various Bible studies. All of this you've heard before if you've been here at Trinity for any length of time. Often in the Scriptures, though God tells His people to remember to remember what's gone before. At least 230 times in the Word, the word remember is found calling us to think back on what's happened before us because it affects us today. Righteousness is not in the knowing of it, just in the knowing of it, though. Remember the truth from the Scriptures that are found in James' epistle. James writes these words, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, 
and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Sacrificial living in the pattern of our Trinitarian God most closely demonstrated toward us in the Son, our Lord Jesus, is that which we are to emulate with others. God acted on our behalf sacrificially when, his, when we, his enemies, were far from him. He took the initiative. God took the initiative on our salvation, not us. It wasn't until God acted that we would even think about salvation in Christ Jesus. We love God, the Scriptures say, because He first loved us. So then, we too must take the initiative to live sacrificially. Let me say that again. We must then, in the likeness of Jesus Christ, take the initiative to live sacrificially. And what do I mean by taking the initiative? Let me try to explain that a little bit. Some years ago, I heard the phrase, race to the bottom. Race to the bottom. The context of this phrase was that of a person perceiving another person's need and racing to meet that need. So how is that racing to the bottom? Rather, in the bottom, in that context, is a, is a reference to selflessness. We are to meet the needs of others, not to receive accolades from other men, but rather to live as becomes the followers of Christ. <clears throat> we are to live sacrificially before God because He has sacrificed for us. God will sort out the rewards. We are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we are to race to one another to live, we are to race with one another to live sacrificially, not for the praise of men, but in gratitude for God's grace toward us. Another application should be made here as well. Sometimes when we live sacrificially toward others, we become proud in our own sacrifices. We become proud in our own sacrifices. Brethren, this destroys the very notion of love and sacrifice. There will always be those who despise those who live sacrificially and envy the love of those who have the love of God. Some of those people are in the church as well. Some of those people are us. We, not, we must not become bitter because others do not live as sacrificially as we think they ought to live. Sacrificial living should be done much like fasting and prayer is to be done in the Scriptures. In other words, sacrificial living is to be done in secret. This is the lesson of our Lord's humble earthly beginnings. Though His birth was announced by a heavenly host, it was proclaimed to a few shepherds out in the fields at nighttime. It was proclaimed in a star in the heavens, but only a few noticed it, those few being the Magi. In other words, Jesus came in humility to do the work of the Father, to live sacrificially. He didn't come with pomp and circumstance, do His kingly authority. No, He became a humble man a humble, in humble circumstances to do humiliating work 
to die on a cross. That was a curse to the Jews. But that humiliating work would change the world. Would change the world. He raced to the bottom. He spent three days there following his death. Then God raised him up and seated him in heaven and gave him all power and authority over heaven and earth. Jesus is our example. He didn't do it for the accolades of men. He did it because of the love of the Father for you and me. So I leave you with these words supernaturally penned by the Apostle John. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love Him because He first loved us. Let us pray together.